It's Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. Today's show is a follow-up to a show that aired in February about Chugach State Park. I was intrigued by a few paragraphs in the 2016 management plan about the first people to arrive in the Anchorage area. I wanted to learn more about the seafaring first people who first discovered the Upper Cook Inlet and the Denina Athabascans who then moved into the area we now know as Anchorage and hunted and fished in the area we now know as Chugach State Park. Although Kluna Inc. owns 10% of the land that Chugach State Park sits on and is the largest private landowner in the Anchorage municipality, the Denina have been called the invisible people because the stories of their ancestors have not been heard. Aaron Leggett, Senior Curator of Alaska History and Indigenous Culture at the Anchorage Museum and President of the Tribal Council of the Native Village of Eklutna, joins me today to talk about the past, present, and future of the Denina in the Anchorage area. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. My guest today is Aaron Leggett, Senior Curator of Alaska History and Indigenous Culture at the Anchorage Museum. He is Denina Athabaskan and is the president of the Tribal Council of the Native Village of Eklutna. Thanks for joining me today, Aaron. Thank you for having me on, Lisa. So in February of this year, and we're in 2021 right now, um, I did a show on Chugach State Park and particularly about the management plan that was updated in 2016. And there was just this very small portion of the plan that explained who had been in the area of the park originally. And I was very intrigued and wanted to know more. So that's why I reached out to you. And I'm so glad that you're here to talk about the first people and what is now Chugach State Park. So thank you again for joining me. Um, you're welcome. So um, my people uh, are the Upper Cook Inlet, uh, Denina Athabaskan, or more specifically called the Kenachtana, uh, the Kinnick Arm, Kinnick River people. And basically, our geographic home is what we now today consider all of the municipality of Anchorage, uh, and then up into um, parts of the Matsu around Wasilla and um, the Little Sioux, and then going up towards um, on the old Glen Highway uh, towards Jim Creek and all the way up to about the, the Butte area. So that kind of what we typically think of as sort of this area, you know, Anchorage and Anchorage proper, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, or the bedroom communities. And, and then going south um as far as uh about indian would have been um sort of the southern boundaries just because of the geographic challenges which we can talk about a little bit later but um the denina are one of um 11 athabascan or Diné speaking people and uh in alaska they're also Diné speaking or athabascan speaking people in canada and linguistically Diné people are related to the Navajo and the Apache in the Southwest. So we're all one people, one language family over a, a massive geographic area. But the thing that distinguishes the Denina are that we're the only Northern Athabascans who live on uh, saltwater or a marine environment, as well as sort of um, typical when most people think of Athabascans or Diné, it's sort of typical kind of hunter, fisher, trappers of the boreal forest. Um, we, we check all those boxes, but we also had access to the ocean. 
And the Denina don't claim that we've been here since time immemorial, uh, probably came in in several migrations over the last 1,000 to 1,500 years. But so for a very long time, so it wasn't a recent um, migration, some older outdated signages, you know, sort of wants to attribute the fact that we had been here maybe no more than a few generations before the Russians arrived. Um, but that that's wrong. That was based on one archaeological test in the 1960s and is is in a way to me highly uh, offensive because we can prove now um, at a minimum uh, eight, nine hundred years and with better archaeology and, and knowing how to look in this area anyways um so we uh utilized you know the um you know our, our area anybody that's lived here or lived here long enough will will know that this is one of the most um uh bountiful you know places in alaska it's i i like to say it's no surprise that half the entire state's population lives in our traditional homeland uh, we kind of fit what I would argue is that Goldilocks, not too warm, not too cold kind of zone. And it's interesting if you look around the um, the circumpolar north, that 59 to 61, 62 degree latitude um, is a kind of a sweet spot. The, you know, the capitals of um, Scandinavia, uh, you know, Norway, uh, Sweden, and then Finland, which is not Scandinavian, Nordic, but uh, nevertheless, Helsinki, St. Petersburg are all uh, within that kind of niche area. And so um, with that, also the, the abundant uh, fish and wildlife, or at least historically used to be the fish, you know, the Kenai River with its uh, giant runs of uh, king salmon and still you know the kenai river and the russian river for for sockeye salmon or i mean excuse yeah sockeye salmon the silver salmon uh that used to run into upper cook inlet into the the big sioux the little sioux the eklutna river um and then uh the land animals um bears moose most people are surprised to know that at least until maybe the beginning of the 20th century or the later half of the 19th century that actually caribou were the predominant uh, big game animal, at least in this area, in and around um, Anchorage uh, and into the Matsu Valley. Um, so there's but, car there's caribou down on the Kenai, right? Those are transplanted. Okay. Um, they were wiped out of uh, the, and they were on the Kenai too. Um, mm -hmm. And but the difference is um, that the caribou that were here were what are called the woodland caribou. They're a bigger <coughs> species of caribou, and they've actually disappeared out of almost all of their historic range. There's a tiny pocket of them now in southern uh, British Columbia, but they lived in the forests. They were um, they weren't um, like a herd, you know, animal. They didn't migrate in herds or large herds, I should say. Um, so they're more like like elk, I guess, in the sense of, of their, their behaviors. And they would go up, you know, into the mountains. Uh, and it's said that, you know, parts of Chugach State Park were actually quite productive for that. So nobody's uh, entirely sure why. Uh, I think it's a combination of probably 
over harvesting environmental changes, both, um, you know, uh, man-made um, like uh, massive fires that, that swept through, like especially on the Kenai Peninsula and, and other areas. And, um, uh, you know, and probably just more general climate change that would not have necessarily been precipitated at that time by um, as much we would, or I'm sure human impact had something to do with a little bit of it, but, you know, what the industrial revolution did to the environment versus what we're doing today are not exactly the same worldwide. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly in Alaska, you know, it wasn't the case. So, um, yeah, and so we did all those things. And um, then we also traveled on um, the waterways of, of Cook Inlet uh, using technologies borrowed from our neighbors, the Aleutic or Sukbiak, like kayaks and uh, large skin boats and that kind of thing. I think I, that, so there, there's two things here. I had no idea that there were caribou here. <laughs> that is like something that is completely new to me. So thanks. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I did, I was looking at something yesterday about Aleutic um, boats here. And I had no idea that there was that connection either. Yeah. Um, so can, can we talk a little bit about more like who was here before the Athabascans were here? Sure. Because, um, <clears throat> we think that it's been, there have been people here for about 10,000 years, right? Um, I think it's like five, five or 6,000. I think mm -hmm. 10,000 years ago, this area was pretty much socked in with glaciers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the Anchorage Bowl was all filled in. And, and so I think it's in the last five or 6,000 years. Mm -hmm. And um, as the glaciers started to recede, um, what I understand, so archaeologists like to, categorize things into different um sort of phases based on you know the tool assemblages and 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 different things and so there were several waves in cook inlet so you have what's called an ocean bay culture with prehistoric way way back which has similarities to uh kodiak and um parts of prince william sound and then there's what's called the kachemak bay uh, tradition, which centered surprisingly, not surprisingly, in Kachemak Bay itself, and are probably the direct ancestors to um, Aleutic people. So, in other words, what happened is at some point in the last 2000 years, pre um, other developments, the, the environment changed and the uh, the uh, the life ways of the people that were living here were not as adapted to those changes. And they moved out and went to the Alaska Peninsula, um, Kodiak, Prince William Sound. And then there was also another group called what's called what's been described as Riverine Kachemak. And this is a bit controversial, but I tend to believe this, that they may have been uh, what we today consider the ancestors of um, modern day Yupik people. Um, it should be pointed out that Yupik people and um, Aleutic or Sukbiak people genetically and linguistically are closely related but have very different lifestyles. Um, so, you know, and 
outdated, archaic term for the Aleutic or Sukbiak people was sometimes called Pacific Eskimo. And it was a more ocean-based um, uh, uh, lifestyle that borrowed also heavily um, or adapted, I should say. I don't want to use borrowed. We'll, we use the word adapted from uh, the lifestyle further out on the Aleutian chain, the, the, their styles of boats and, and, and hunting. And so that's how um, when the Russians came in, it became deeply confusing to them because they looked at the people they encountered out on the Aleutian chain all the way up into the Alaska Peninsula and Kodiak and Prince William Sound as one people. But we know linguistically um, and they are different people uh, now anciently go back way 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 back there they may have all been part of one group but again these things are all in flux and so i don't want to ascribe too much you know i, I was exactly sort of, i was sort of surprised in the plan which was finalized in 2016 <laughs> that the term eskimo was used generally um uh -huh. so i mean you've kind of fleshed out what that really should be it should be an acknowledgement that there were different types of people that right. had a seafaring life right and we shouldn't be lumping them all into that generalized term anymore correct yeah well so yeah i mean the easy thing is that it's you know it you know it's like alaska has eskimos indians and aleuts basically um and then we all kind of diverge from that but but that's a pretty outdated term but there has yet to be a, a a better term invented and so for the cursory overview i i see why they would use that although it is falling out of favor certainly yeah um okay so let's talk a little bit about how the land in alaska is for indigenous people and how it's different than the land in the lower 48 we have a lot of listeners from around the world and they might just subscribe to the United States, this reservation system. Right. And we don't have a reservation system, although we have one reservation, Correct. right? Metlakatla. Correct. And so I also want to talk a little bit about why we just have that one. It yeah. Is that their decision? But we, so yeah. I'd really like to talk about ANCSA. Okay. So um, from 1741 with the discovery, you know, by the Russians, so to speak, of Alaska, of course, we were here. Um, until 1867, Alaska was under the, um, you know, the empire of Russia, the czarist empire. And in 1867, Russia sold its interests in Alaska to the United States. There was a big concern uh, that the, if the Russians didn't sell um, to the Americans, that the British would gobble it up and that we'd all become part of Canada. Uh, and of course, they had just gotten <clears throat> through a costly war, the Crimean War, um, where they were facing off against the British and uh, others. And so um, the United States was looked at as the most favorable um, country to sell to. Um, but what they sold for $7.2 million was Russia's interests in Alaska. So the forts that were established, say, at um, on Alaska, St. Michael, uh, the Pribilof Islands being the key one, 
uh, Kodiak, Kenai, um, Prince William Sound, and then their their headquarters at Sitka. So the buildings and you know the 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 um, the forts and and those things. And and really, what it was about at that time was more the um, the trading rights and the you know sort of international standings. And so the Pribilof Islands in particular were really what cemented the deal because uh, on the Pribilofs from, uh, let's see, from about the beginning of the 19th century till 1986, I think, there was a commercial harvest of fur seals. 90% of the world's fur seals um, breed on the Pribilofs and still do. Um, But there was a commercial harvest and it said that this was an incredibly lucrative um endeavor um i've heard figures that within two years of harvesting fur seals off the pribilofs the united states made its money back at 7.2 million dollars so um it's also important to remember that in 1867 we're two years out of the civil war uh we're in the middle of reconstruction uh alaska kind of purchases you know or the U.S. purchases Alaska, but they really don't know what to do with it. There, there's some maps. The maps along the coast are pretty good, but the Russians uh, never really got up into, you know, much of the interior of Alaska, up into the Copper River. Um, nobody knows where the border is, so all these things have to be worked out. And so, for a number of decades, um, there's a lot of back and forth. But the thing that really kind of kicks it into high gear and makes it a priority for the United States to figure out, okay, what is it exactly that we have comes with the number of gold rushes, in particular, the Klondike gold rush, and, and where's the borders, and who, who's in control of what, and creating a, some sort of central government, because from 1867 up through the 1890s, Alaska's governmental affairs were, were handled by uh, the Department of the Army, and then it was the... Um, district of alaska then it became the territory of alaska there's a whole series of, of different things but in that were some vague references to what what rights do alaska natives have if at all any and so in the treaty of session um there's i think it's the third article says that <clears throat> the quote-unquote civilized tribes of alaska so when they mean civilized what they're talking about are the ones that had the most contact with Russians. So again, the people along um, the uh, Aleutian chain, parts of the Alaska Peninsula, Kodiak, Kenai, um, Prince William Sound, um, basically said, depending on their natural allegiance, had the option to go um, to Russia to become Russian citizens. Now, it should be pointed out that in those areas, there was a lot of um, Russian men who had uh, taken native wives and had children, and at that point, some even grandchildren. Some had been educated um, in Russia, um, you know, sort of a, a Creole population, um, some of whom had uh, essentially what we would consider to be college degrees uh, at various uh, naval schools and different academies in Russia and could return within a number of years. And of course, the Russians that were here also had the option um, to return. 
but after a number of years, then um, that window closed. And again, under the Department of the Army, um, what they found was that, you know, a lot of the people that were in the army were either ex-Confederate soldiers or had come off of uh, the Indian Wars in the West, uh, in California, the Modoc War, and others. And so they took a pretty dim view to um, the indigenous populations and really had no rights. So then after that, there is, I think in 1884, what's called the Organic Act, which is the first time that um, people could actually um, buy land in Alaska. And it, it, there's some brief mentions of, of what native rights are, but the point being, it was largely ignored. Uh, later on, there was an allotment act, uh, an Indian allotment act uh, that was created, but not well understood or publicized. Um, and, um, but to answer your question more specifically by the 1880s, the federal government had said, um, had made a policy that they're not going to negotiate any more treaties, i.e. create more reservations. Now, the one reservation that we have in Alaska that you mentioned earlier, Metlakatla, the people of Metlakatla were actually um, Canadian, what today we would consider Canadian Simshian that were leaving uh, Canada uh, under religious persecution from the, uh, because they were part of the Anglican church and under their priest, Father Duncan had moved to Matlakatla and through largely through his help negotiated this one treaty. And what he was trying to do in Matlakatla um, was kind of create this model uh, Indian community, kind of this experiment of uh, what, how you could integrate indigenous people into the western world so to speak so it meant um uh you know largely abandoning most cultural customs and um and and things like that it didn't completely work uh and certainly culture you know continues on metlakatla and totem poles and and and, and a lot of that but but it, it had a very severe impact for a number of of generations mm -hmm. so um so the question about who owns land in Alaska was largely unresolved, and that continued through the first half of the 20th century. Uh, but then after World War II, when there was finally enough of a population base in Alaska, uh, non-native population base, I should say, uh, to justify perhaps Alaska could become, instead of just a territory, but become a state on its own. There was the strategic defense of Alaska and the importance of that. So Alaska- Okay, so, kind of so just, just to be clear, I wanna make sure I'm clear on this. Um, so they were only counting the white population in Alaska to move it to territory status. They were not counting indigenous well, population. Yeah, I mean, they did well, they didn't know. They, they just didn't have a feeling for how many people were actually Correct. here? Okay. Yeah. And then also, uh, you know, several waves of different diseases, uh, smallpox, 
1918 flu epidemic, other things, you know, wiped out large numbers of indigenous populations. So I did before- see that. And one of the things I was reading about Anchorage was that there was this big, there was a smallpox that wiped out a lot of people in the late 1800s, I think. Uh, early to mid 1836 to 1839 um so but i think it's not until 1920 that the uh you know indigenous population becomes smaller than the non-native population of alaska so that's kind of the turning point so and that's kind of when sort of more of the modern industrialization happens anchorage starts to grow um you know things kind of development sort of happens enough because there was a a, a concern and they'd seen it in other places where um you know there would be a boom uh for a number of years and then it would become either a ghost town or or you know become greatly reduced i mean if you see pictures of gnome at the beginning of the 20th century you'd be surprised you know the number of people that were there i've seen pictures of people that had you know grass tennis courts and and on all these things and and um so but it it wasn't sustainable so i think it was the stability and world war ii kind of created that stability and and it also i think with the establishment of the military bases was enough of a justification to start lobbying for statehood and so ultimately in 1955 there uh, was a constitutional convention where the delegates drafted a constitution and then finally in 1959 alaska became a state so in 1959 when alaska became a state for the first time this state entity starts selecting lands that in areas that indigenous people had always considered to be you know, their, their lands. And there were a number of also uh, federal uh, projects that were being proposed that um, would have drastically altered what we think of Alaska today. Fortunately, they didn't go through the two biggest ones were one was called the Rampart Dam, where it would have basically put a dam on the middle of the, um, the Yukon River and would have flooded 10 interior villages and created at the time the world's largest man-made lake and would have been the largest hydroelectric project um, in the world, I think. I'd have to double check on that, but but I'm pretty sure. And another one was a project um, called Project Chariot, where after World War II, there was, um, the government was trying to figure out peaceful applications for atomic weapons. And so there was a proposal to detonate seven um, nuclear bombs uh, 20 miles from the village of Point Hope up on the northwestern uh, coast of Alaska, up way up there, and would have created the world's large or would have created the furthest north ice free port in America. And they would have said, and they said basically that this would have no effect on the village 20 miles away. This is also at the beginning of um, the environmental movement and and really kind of coming to terms with, um, you know, what is our impact on on the environment and 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 all these things. So, various Alaska Native uh, entities started forming to lobby for land claims. And also around that time, um, there was a newspaper created called the Tundra Times 
that was started in Fairbanks um, and uh, that dealt specifically with native issues. And this newspaper was, was, you know, disseminated around the state. And for the first time, it, it was kind of like a light bulb went off when the Inupiat of Utkiagvik realized that they were basically having the same issues and fights that uh, the Central Council of Clinton and Haidas were having in Southeast about land claims and, and hunting seasons and, and subsistence and all these things. And so eventually in 1966, um, there was a convening of what became the Alaska Federation of Natives. And um, this first convention was largely funded by um, the uh, Denina from across the inlet over at Tionic, who at that time, like Aklutna, had uh, an educational reserve that was set aside. Uh, and there was oil exploration that was um, wanting to occur on the reservation. And uh, the normal way of it would have been the oil companies would have paid the federal government, the federal government through the BI would have then disseminated those funds back to the village. The, the, luckily, the villagers um, had befriended uh, a lawyer um, in Anchorage, a man by the name of Stan McCutcheon, um, who was also involved with the Constitutional Convention and who came from a well-connected family in Alaska. His father had served in the territorial legislature and he'd served in the territorial legislature as well um, and sued the federal government to say, um, instead of the BIA getting the funds, the native village of Tionic should get the funds. They know what they need to do and ultimately were successful. And part of that also led to the Secretary of the Interior at the time, uh, Stuart Udall, putting a land freeze on the state of Alaska, saying that no more land will be selected by the state until native land claims are resolved. So this kind of goes for a couple of years. And, and of course, the state of Alaska is not happy about that. Um, and it really becomes an issue in 1968 when oil is discovered at Prudhoe Bay. And the oil companies then are saying, um, after looking at some options of how to get the oil out, the, the most um, logical or, or the, 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 the scenario that made the most sense was to create the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. But the oil companies said, we're not building a pipeline over lands that we don't know who's, who has the ownership to. And so all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, the people lobbying for land claims now have an ally on their side uh, with the uh, oil companies, their lawyers, their lobbyists, all those things. And it was a window in time. Um, it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, there was kind of a reevaluation of what is um, the federal government's, um, you know, responsibility to natives. And it was largely looked at as the reservation system had been a failure um, for 95% of, um, you know, the reservations. There might have been a couple that were, you know, had a modicum of success, but they were few and far between. And um, so this all predates sort of Indian gaming and other economic development activities. Um, and I would argue today, many of the reservations um, still face those same issues. So the point being that um, 
you know, in the 1960s, what did the reservation for the Mashantucket Pequot look like was, was it, you wouldn't know there was a reservation there. Now they're multi-billion dollar tribe. But at the same time, if you went to Pine Ridge Reservation in 1965 and you went to the Pine Ridge Reservation today, it largely doesn't look different. So, um, so there was this effort to um, try something different. And what ultimately came out of that was the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. And so as designed um, through, you know, many years of back and forth, um, uh, Alaska Natives retained 44 million acres of land and were compensated for just under a billion dollars for lands that, that they couldn't, weren't able to recover um, to be divided between 12 regional corporations and 180, 190 or so smaller village corporations. And so any Alaska native with at least one quarter blood born on or before December 18th, 1971 uh, could enroll in one of these regional corporations. And if they chose uh, a village corporation as well. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. We are going to take a short break, and when we return, the conversation with Aaron Leggett will continue. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes Store, or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My conversation with senior curator of Alaska history and indigenous culture at the Anchorage Museum and president of the Tribal Council of the Native Village of Aklutna, Aaron Leggett, continues. So my village corporation is Aklutna Inc. And, and we'll okay. get to that in, okay. in a minute here. So um, Anxa passes and within a few, you know, there's a, you know, a lot of years are spent, most of the 70s are spent trying to figure out how, how do Alaska Native corporations make money, a lot of mistakes are made, lawsuits back and forth, what does this really mean, you know, so forth, you know, yada, yada, so on and so forth. Now, in ANCSA, the, the only mandate that exists for the corporations is to make money for their shareholders. Um, and of course, these shares are owned um, by the shareholders, but they're not on the open market, so to speak. And um, but so the question is, what what do how do tribes fit into this? And you have some um, uh, you have some corporations create and spin off uh, uh, social service entities or take the old uh, native associations that lobbied for land claims and um, they become kind of the designated ones uh, to provide social services. But what's discovered after a number of years is that the, you know, the issues are too large for any one of the corporations to support on their own. And so what is the federal government's kind of trust responsibility? And so that's where tribes 
become part of the conversation and um, it's realized that um, tribes, you know, the question is, did ANCSA extinguish sovereignty? And after a number of years, it's discovered, no, it did not extinguish sovereignty. Um, and in some ways, Alaska Native tribes are to be treated like tribes in the lower 48 um, because we never signed an official treaty that would have, you know, established or, or, or taken that away. And so the tribes are able to access various federal grants and programs that, um, that, that a nonprofit would not be able to. That's changed a little bit. And, you know, there's, it's still an ongoing and evolving uh, issue. The other part of it is that the state of Alaska didn't want to have to deal with 200 or so individual tribes. It would, it would much prefer to deal with one regional nonprofit. Uh, and when oil money was flush, that was sort of the, um, the stance and the operation. No, tribes don't exist here. And that's changing, of course, as the economics of our state has changed and it's become more and more clear, certainly in my time of being involved with these things, that um, some of the services that the state previously provided, um, the tribes could do co-management of um, and access and tap into um, federal funds. Um, you know, public safety is one that, that that's, you know, pretty obvious. So instead of the state of Alaska um, footing the bill for the village public safety officer program, um, if they work with the tribes and the larger nonprofit entities, they can tap into Department of Justice funds for Indian country for for policing. And it's, it's sort of the state then releases part of its, um, you know, uh, duties, I guess, or, 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 you know, and this is, again, this is an evolving thing. And there's concerns about, you know, that they, they hear the horror stories about how uh, non-Native members are treated on, you know, Indian lands and, and, you know, reverse discrimination and on and on it goes. So the, these things just continue to, to evolve. Uh, and it's still not well, completely this also, settled. This also played a part in some of the CARES money too, didn't it? There was Correct. Some, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was the question. And that's where it's becomes confusing and contradictory. So uh, when the CARES money came through, um, there was an argument by mostly by tribes in the lower 48, although there were a few Alaskan tribes, that the money that Congress had set aside for CARES Act should only go to tribal entities. What the federal government finally decided was no, um, that the ANCSA corporations do represent a population of native people that are not enrolled into a tribe. And so for us to not fund it through that avenue in descendants, that it would, would leave a chunk of, of, of people out. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's ultimately what happened. So people ask me, you know, well, what did you think about that decision? Well, I wear a lot of different hats or I have multiple identities because I am 
obviously I'm the president of the native village of Aklutna, but I'm also uh, a Siri shareholder. And I recognize that at the end of the day, with the corporations becoming successful and their recognition, that means that more money came to Alaska overall than would have had it not happened because, um, you know, it would have just, and the, these are just hypothetical numbers, but, you know, someone like the Navajo Nation stood, if they had been successful and said that the Anxa corporations are not to be a part of it, would have gotten an extra, say, $100 million or something like that. I mean, uh, because they are the largest tribe in the United States. As it sits, I think they still got close to a billion dollars or something. Again, um, don't quote me on that, but but it, it was a very large number. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of ambiguity right now about what, what rights do the tribes have? Because the federal government, on the one hand, says, yes, you qualify for these uh, various Indian grants um, through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but then you don't qualify in other avenues and it becomes very confusing and lots of money has to get spent with lawyers to kind of separate it out. And it's evolving depending on which administration is in charge and which state administration and all those things. So um, I, I do want to get to the um, part about Chugach State Park and the, the planning yeah. unit that you're in, but I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about um, the gaming issue because there was an article in the paper today. So um, if you'd like to speak to that, go ahead. So in 1925, um, the, um, the federal government created what was through an executive order called the Eklutna Educational Reserve. It was a reserve of 320, I believe 328,000 acres. Um, basically everything from the edge of Anchorage, um, you know, up into Muldoon, uh, all the way up um, into a little bit of the, the Matsu borough along uh, the Kinnick River and that area um, as, as an ed educational reserve set aside where they created a Bureau of Indian Affairs school. Well, and, and I should point out also that weren't, there were some homesteads around, um, you know, different pieces um, closer to Anchorage or up in Eagle River, there, but, but very small numbers. Well, over the decades, that 328,000 acre educational reserve got whittled down um, by various federal agencies. So when Elmendorf was put in and when Fort Rich was put in, it was basically one federal agency transferring it to the other. And, and the, the, the people of the area, you know, the Eklutna people were never consulted on these things. The roads that went in, the railroad was already there. So that was its own separate thing. So the highways, gravel extraction, you know, all the development that occurred, um, you know, we were never consulted. And at the end, in the early 1960s, when the uh, native village of Eklutna was first kind of officially established, the what was, quote unquote, the educational reserve was down to about a thousand acres around the immediate area of um, the village. And my great grandmother had filed for a native allotment um, about five miles south of the village. Um, 
at Birchwood, where she had lived since the 1920s. And my great uncle told her to file for that allotment because he was afraid he'd seen what had happened, that it would just be taken out from under her. And one day, you know, the land that she'd lived on for 30 years, uh, she'd be told was no longer hers. So they went down and they filed for a native allotment in the immediate area around her house, about eight acres, and were granted it. And um, then um, she passed away and then it went to her, uh, her children, including my grandmother. Um, and my great uncle had lived on the property from and moved back to the property, I think in 1985 and lived there till he passed away in 2016, 2017. Um, so, uh, the argument that we had was that our native allotment should not be treated differently than a native allotment in the lower 48, uh, because we have a tribe that has always been in the area and has exercised tribal jurisdiction that uh, in other places in the lower 48, uh, the federal government has said that you can have off-reservation gaming on a native allotment um, outside of it. And so that's what our lawsuit was about. And what the federal government is claiming now is that because we did not have a quote unquote proper treaty and reservation that had formally been established, that it then means that our native allotment is not the same uh, as a native allotment in the lower 48 or not, I don't say not the same, it's not completely the same or does not fit the same definitions for uh, a gaming facility. And so, yeah, we just got our um, reaffirmation in court and we're now weighing our, our, our decisions. But it, it's a disappointment because it's just, again, we feel that it's an opportunity for the federal government once and for all to say, that um, that there's a level of equity in lands that are held in trust by the Bureau of Indian Affairs on behalf of Alaska Natives should be treated the same as lands held in trust by the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, for Natives in uh, the lower 48. But they're coming back and saying, no, actually it isn't uh, because it should be pointed out that unlike uh, those ANCSA lands that can be bought and sold, our native allotment is is locked in. It, it's, you know, it's held in trust. And to get it out of that would probably take us another decade, which I'm not in favor of at this point. But if we were to try to do it, we would then have to go spend a lot of money to try to get it out because we're not afforded the same, all the same protections, I should say. We have some of them, but not all the same protections over that piece of, of property. So um, essentially what it means right now is that um, we're kind of in this purgatory, I guess is the best way of putting it. <laughs> that's a bummer. That is a real bummer. Yeah. So I guess that's, I guess my, my message would be, I guess Indian lands in Alaska held in trust or in purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, talk about then the Klutna Peters Creek Planning Unit, which is part of the Chugach State Park. Mm -hmm. um, and I, um, I mean, your ancestors obviously held this spot near and dear. 
Um, and there was a lot of activity by the indigenous people way back when in this area, hunting, fishing, like you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think for Anchorage, one of, for everybody in Anchorage, one of the most significant pieces of this is this is where most of our drinking water comes from. Correct. So a Klutna Lake, this huge lake, that's not just a recreational lake, but also mm-hmm. a very important source of drinking Yeah, about water. 90% of our drinking water comes from it. And also, um, so in 1929, um, there was a um, hydroelectric dam that was put uh, about halfway up the Klutna River, built by a local um business development family um, that uh, created uh, this hydroelectric dam that provided the elect- a lot of the electricity for Anchorage in those early days. But by World War II, it couldn't keep up and it wasn't generating enough. And actually during the war, they had to bring in an old World War I um, warship to generate electricity for Anchorage. And so after the war, um, it was decided or it was, you know, it was the federal government decided that there needed to be a better solution. And so they went to the head of the lake and created a much larger, much more significant um, uh, hydroelectric power plant that then provided power uh, for the city um, and essentially then cut off water but from the upper half of um, the river from the head of the lake down to the old dam, um, no water would flow except in the event of, of occasional spillovers, which they work really hard to kind of keep the level so that it doesn't happen. But sometimes, you know, a massive rainstorm comes in or, or something and it would spill over. And so I think since the 1960s, there's been like every few years, one of these spillover events. Um, but generally speaking, the, 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 the river kind of went dry. And so when most people see the Eklutna river, uh, what they don't realize is the water that they're seeing is not from the lake itself or wasn't, um, it's coming from runoff from, uh, Thunderbird Creek and some of the other creeks, uh, in the area. Luckily, because of that, there has been, and still may continues to be a small run of salmon that are able um, to uh, to to spawn in the lower part of the river, uh, but that deadbeat dam um, impeded them from going any further up, um, and of course, having no water, they wouldn't have been able to go much further, anyways. But um, nevertheless, um, we for for several decades, the tribe had worked on rehabbing um, the river. Um, they pulled out, uh, hundreds of tons of junk cars and refrigerators and old TVs and, and debris that people had dumped off the cliffs there, um, for decades, uh, to kind of rehab it. <coughs> and then in 20, a few years ago, 2017 or <coughs> 2018, the, the actual dam was taken out with a number of partners with the tribe and the, um, Rasmussen Foundation contributed the uh, Trouts Unlimited uh, and the Conservation Fund to <clears throat> take that um, deadbeat dam out. And in 1990, when the federal 
government uh, sold uh, its interest in different um, uh, energy projects in Alaska to the state, there was a 30 year um, clause put into it that said that after 30 years, the utilities had to do a study of the river and the flora and fauna and see if um, water, you know, if, if sending some water down the river would help improve the habitat. Now, the utilities argument always had been with the deadbeat dam, why would we send water down the river when it's just going to hit that old dam? But once we took out the old dam, <clears throat> that argument went away. And so just last week, for the first time since 1929, uh, water from the head of the lake is going down the entire length of the Eklutna River. Uh, and they're studying it, looking at the hydrology and um, you know the impacts and, and whatnot. And our hope is that at some point, <clears throat> there will be some um, uh, regular flows that, that occur into the river. And what that number is, is still trying to be determined kind of that sweet spot because the utilities naturally don't want to give up uh, all of their um, cheap energy that's being generated by this uh, hydroelectric dam that goes through the mountain and then spills in uh, on the backside of the mountain into what's called the Eklutna tail race uh, on the old Glen Highway, and then goes into the Kinnick River after it's you know generated all of the, its power. And so um, our hope is that we can get some of that water uh, back into the actual river uh, to improve salmon habitat and also uh, just the overall effects that having more salmon in the river will have for the entire Eklutna Valley. Uh, that it'll attract uh, more flora and fauna. It should be pointed out uh, that I think even Chugach State Park is realizing those opportunities uh, with its recent uh, improvements up there and uh, it's, you know, the cabins and the rentals and things and, and the, the, the roads. When I was a kid, you know, uh, when you went above the, um, the, the water plant um you know it was all gravel you know now mm -hmm. i was just on there last week and now they, they've just repaved it wow. it's, it's it's still pretty narrow but it's uh it's in pretty good shape and the parking lots were overflowing on a saturday in the middle of september so i think covid on top of it has also um i would be interested to see and that'll probably be the next time we have a meeting with Chugach State Park. What are the demographic shifts that have occurred in the last two years? And I'm, I'm almost positive that it's probably doubled the number of visitors they're getting, you know, um, on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. Not, not so much the camping. That's probably about the same, or maybe went up 20, 30 percent. But the day use stuff um, is exploded. I Absolutely. believe. Absolutely, I and, think so too. Um, because there wasn't that long ago, I would run into people and they'd say, oh, Clutin Lake, I've never been there, you know, uh, and now it's like, oh, my God, I didn't know this was in our backyard and and things. And I think part of it also is just some of the shift in people's um, outdoor recreational habits um, with the decrease, the decline and, and virtual shutdown of any form of um you know, king salmon fishing in Upper Cook Inlet, 
you know, uh, places that people used to go, say to the Deshka or Croto Creek or Montana Creek, and, and those kinds of places aren't happening. You know, the growth of the Matsu Borough, all those things kind of lead to people looking at other outdoor opportunities. And, and I think especially relatively close to home, um, I think all kind of feed into that. Mm-hmm. Well, Aaron, this has been fantastic. I have learned so much. And uh, I have to say, um, you know, I was born and raised here and went to the public school system in Anchorage. Well, I don't know if the experience was uh, different for you, but I I, I definitely learned about Native culture generally in Alaska, Mm -hmm. but never really had an understanding of the Denina no in anchorage there was no. nothing taught to us about no. the denina in anchorage so this would have been the 70s and early yeah. 80s a lot of the cultural practices that vanished you know it, by the time my grandmother was born in the 1930s in this area were continuing um and in some cases still continue uh to this day um with subsistence activities and um and cultural beliefs and those kinds of things. And so kind of uniting all of the Denina villages uh, in South Central um, and then doing an exhibition at the Anchorage Museum and an exhibition catalog called Deninoc, Who Truly Is She? The Denina Way of Living kind of brought all these things to life and and showed artifacts and and, um, objects and photographs to really kind of put a face to those invisible people that that so many people had no idea existed. Thanks so much for joining me today, Aaron. Chanan, you're welcome. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my guest, Aaron Leggett. You can find pictures and links to the Chugach State Park Management Plan, Shem Pete's Alaska, Aaron Leggett's essay, This Is My Story, Tonight and No More, in the native village of Aklutna at alaskapublic.org. You can also access and listen to the February 19th, 2021 episode of Outdoor Explorer, Chugach State Park. The show was produced by Eric Bork. My name is Lisa Keller, and from all of our hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thanks for listening and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.